This is Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development, all about change in Appalachia. What change has happened, what change is happening, and what change still needs to happen. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison. I'm the CEO of Coalfield Development, and I'm really thrilled this week to have a colleague and also a friend, Stephanie Tyree, who is Executive Director of the West Virginia Community Development Hub, a really uh, a catalytic organization for our state and for our region, and an organization that Coalfield Development has been blessed to do a lot of work together with. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hey, Brandon. I'm real thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I always just like to hear from our guests, sort of how you ended up where you are. So the first question being, were you born and raised in West Virginia? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a West Virginian. Uh, I was born and raised in Charleston and that's where my parents still are. They're in the house I grew up in. And I left uh, after high school and went to college in Pittsburgh and then law school in New York City. And I Stayed in New York for a couple of years and worked and uh, was really doing everything that I could to try to find a way back to West Virginia. I think I realized I was gone for 10 years. I think I realized after about seven years that I really wanted to come home. I think like a lot of people, I wanted to raise my kids and have a family in West Virginia. And I felt like if I raised my kids in New York City, they would have such a different life experience than mine growing up in West Virginia. And um, I really wanted them to grow up in West, the hills of home. So I came back here in 2009 and I've been pretty much here ever since. I lived for a year in Eastern Kentucky doing some work over there and uh, then came back in 2012 and started at the hub. And that's where I've been. Back to New York City, what did you have a good experience in in New York City? I wouldn't say that I did. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I loved where I worked after law school, but I hated law school. I don't. Law school was not a good experience for me, um, though it was very enlightening um, and it's really driven my work since then. Living in New York, it was just bizarre to me. You know, I would go full days and I wouldn't see the sky. Um, and okay. it was just a totally different kind of mental experience than I was used to. And um, I just did, I felt out of place there. Um, and as soon as I got back to Appalachia, I felt like really clear that this was my place um, and that my people were here. One thing I didn't mention is, you know, I'm a sixth generation West Virginian. My family has been in West Virginia for a long time on my dad's side. Um, and uh, my mom is from Western Kentucky. But she came to West Virginia um, in the 70s. So um, I grew up around a really big family in Charleston and uh, I'm black. My family in Charleston is is black. And so that was a really interesting and rich experience to grow up in that community in West Virginia and come from, I think, like kind of the heart of what West Virginians are. Like my uh, ancestors were salt miners and, and coal miners and preachers, <laughs> real traditional kind of industries of, of West Virginians. Yeah. And then I guess the last sort of thing I'll say is that a lot of my dad's generation, uh, almost his entire uh, 12 siblings went to West Virginia State University, which was a historically black college and uh, outside of Charleston and Institute. And so 
I kind of feel like my academic journey was started uh, from a West Virginia state because both my mom and my dad went there and it sort of launched their professional careers, which obviously supported my development. Absolutely. And where, where did you do your undergrad studies? University of Pittsburgh. I don't speak too much about it because so many WVU fans are. Yeah, that's touchy. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that. I, I, you know, we're friends as well as colleagues, but uh, yeah, I, that's funny that I actually never, I don't think I realized. I love Pittsburgh. I thought it was, it is a wonderful uh, city. It is actually completely different than it was when I was in college there. I went to college 20 years ago now, um, but it's really transformed uh, as a city in the last two decades. But I, you know, a part of my heart is definitely in Pittsburgh still. Do you consider Pittsburgh part of Appalachia? Yeah, I mean, kind of in the same way that you maybe you consider like Knoxville part of Appalachia. Um, so I don't think that when you're in Pittsburgh, you feel connected to Appalachia. Um, but I think, you know, and it's got its own rich, really rich culture and um, history there. But certainly right out, right south of Pittsburgh, you know, southwestern Pennsylvania. You don't have to go too far outside city limits to be in a, in hills and hollers. Yeah, yeah. And very kind of similar place, especially to the to northern West Virginia region. I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit now, but just because we hit on Pittsburgh, you know, today... March 31st, we're talking, the president is giving a major address about an infrastructure package in Pittsburgh. You know, I I wonder, not getting into the politics of that, but just if you've spent time in Pittsburgh, obviously we're both very connected to community economic development in Appalachia. What's your sense of, of what could come from that proposal? What are your initial reactions? Well, I think it's a good thing that the new administration is focusing on infrastructure development right out of the gate. The biggest thing is really, we need a level of investment far beyond what we've ever seen before, at least in my lifetime. And we need federal investment that is going to make real scene change on the ground. You know, so I think that I'm hopeful, um, but also have a sense of urgency because it needs to be more than, you know, press releases and um, media sound bites. It needs to be like a wave of funding that comes to our rural communities and, um, and that actually is dispersed really quickly so that we can see transformation in, in the communities. So, I'm a little concerned that the federal government doesn't normally move very quickly, you know. And one thing I didn't say yet about myself is that I am from Charleston, but I don't live in Charleston anymore. And um, I'm married now and I have two little boys and my husband and I uh, live in Fayette County. And so we chose to uh, leave the city (laughs) and the big city of Charleston and live in a small town. And um, we just live on kind of a rural road. And it really is like the heart of West Virginia. It's wonderful living out here. And your boys have plenty of room to go run around and get muddy. And Oh yeah. Yeah. We've got big field and woods right um, beside our house. And did you always know you would want that? I know for your family or did it take leaving for a little while to, to realize that? Yeah, I think it took leaving because my experience growing up was that you were really 
pushed to see success as being getting out of West Virginia, you know? And so I think that um, I had to get some space to be able to define for myself what I wanted and what my vision of like a wonderful life was. And there's something really just strange and wonderful about being from West Virginia because it just is so deep in your heart, you know, even if you try to ignore it, it kind of, it's just there, you know? And so I don't know if I always envisioned like living exactly where we live, but you know, we live right on the edge of the New River Gorge. What could be more beautiful? The country's newest national park. Yes. (laughs) Are locals excited? Are you excited about that or, or nervous about that? Yeah, I think people feel the similar way to how I feel about the infrastructure plan. It's like hopeful, but skeptical, you know? So the biggest issue is that people have a very deep connection to the land that goes back generations. The house that my husband and I live in, we were the, we bought it from the family that built it back in the 1800s, you know? And so, and this is a lot of these small towns, you know, it's the, generations of families live in the same place and so even though it's our national park it's local families hunting grounds and their um their sort of uh outdoor recreational grounds that have always been part of their family and so it i think people want to make sure that they're not excluded from their history even while the you know, national park is, is being grown. I mean, you hit on, you know, salt industry, coal industry, but even tourism, it, it can be extractive, right? Where the point of the economy is people from outside the area are coming here to get something and then leaving. I hadn't really thought about it that way until now, but I mean, if you're not careful, tourism could be the same way, right? We need to do it in a way that honors local people and builds up local business. And isn't seen as like the silver bullet, right? I think that one of the things that you and I have talked about before is that there's no one thing that's going to be like the magic bullet for solving all the needs of rural West Virginia and tourism is definitely not it. I think it's, it's a benefit if it is developed in a beneficial way for communities, but you can certainly look around the country and see places where the development of the tourism industry has not benefited the local communities that are around. I think funders, policymakers, they want to have one good answer to put all the money in and then say our economy is developed. And it's a great point. It's a simple point, but it gets overlooked that there's not a silver bullet. I'm, I'm glad you hit on that. Yeah. I mean, the answer is the people, right? Like if you want to put money into something, you should put money into developing people and helping them have helping them grow their leadership and have successful and fulfilling lives. I think that's part of why we both do what we do, you know, is it's not about a specific industry. It's about leadership and supporting people. So when you think about as a person growing up in in West Virginia, in your family, what were some key moments that sort of shaped you and and developed you into who you are? I think a lot of my leadership 
was developed through watching my dad and learning from him. My dad is was in the Army Reserves. He's retired now. And um, he was also an attorney for the uh, general counsel for the West Virginia Housing Development Fund. And so he did a lot of rural development projects. Um, and uh, but also he just and he was also uh, involved civically a lot in Charleston. So he was a police commissioner. And I think just seeing how hard he worked and um, the different ways that he kind of layered his work in together uh, from the army to the development work to the local leadership work that was impactful for me. And maybe this was his army background, but my dad was really militant about expecting us as kids to follow through on things and we weren't allowed to quit things. And so we could do anything. We could try out any sports or activities that we wanted to. Um, but once we signed up for them, we couldn't quit. Um, we had to finish out the season or the program or whatever it was. And there were many years that I got a month into something and I did not want to do it anymore. And I would, I begged and pleaded to get out of it and to quit and he would not let us. And I feel like that really that really kind of built me into who I am because um, it sort of showed me the importance of once you make a commitment to something, following through on it. Um, and even if it isn't always fun or easy and also being thoughtful about what you commit to. <laughs> because once you're in, you're not getting out of it. So <laughs> what a great lesson. The other thing I think about is, so after high school, I went on a, cross-country trip with two friends for the summer. And we um, visited a bunch of parks and just kind of camped across the country and had a, you know, young person's experience. And um, there were multiple instances on that trip where things really went awry. Um, And the one uh, specific example I'm thinking of is we were out in the Badlands in South Dakota and we were camping. We're driving in this little VW bug, you know, so there was like no ground clearance at all in this thing. It was also weighed down with a bunch of... Yeah, like a very classic road trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like not, adventure in a VW bug. Not an old school VW bug, like a 1998 one. All right. Still though, that's uh, pretty classic. <laughs> yeah, we're, there's three of us squeezed in there with all this junk that we were traveling with. And uh, so, but anyway, we had like two inches of ground clearance and we drove out into this campsite in the Badlands and uh, the uh, we were really far out. We have driven for probably 15 minutes past the entrance of the campground. Nobody around in the middle of these amazing geographic st- structures and uh, we got stuck in a massive expanse and it did not seem like we were going to get out of it and it also was like totally unclear how we were going to find someone to help us and we just figured it out you know we uh ended up like macgyvering uh all of this stuff to pull our car out of the mud it took us forever it took probably like three hours we were completely covered head to toe in mud by the time that we got done with it but the whole time i just felt like we will figure this out because we have to figure this out because I have to get out of here and I will get out of here. And, um, and I think that that kind of like obstinate hopefulness is kind of at the core of my personality, you know, where 
Um, I just really believe that, you know, if you don't give up, if you just try and try and try, you'll find success eventually. But the biggest part is not getting overwhelmed and not giving up. I, I love that. And I think that's so Appalachian too, that just figuring it out, you know, and sometimes our solutions, it, it's not exactly a clean, glossy, middle-class suburban looking target product, but we use what we have and we work with who's around and, 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 and make do not where I expected to go today. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a story I was really thinking about sharing, but um, yeah, one of those really transformational experiences for me. Another transformational experience, and this is a, a different angle for sure, but you know, um, I have a pretty big family. My dad is from a family of 13 brothers and sisters. And like I said before, most of them were in Charleston when I was growing up. And yeah, and then I've got a bunch of siblings too, including a number of like half siblings. My older brother passed away a couple of years after I started at the hub um, in a like unexpected and tragic way. And I was really new to the organization and to the work with my supervisor, the director at the time. You know, when you have a tragedy in your family, like everything stops, you know, and you just have to go. And one of the really like foundational learning experiences I had in my own leadership from that time was seeing how he supported me then. His name is Kent Spellman. And so Kent's approach to supporting me at that time was completely supporting me as a whole person, you know, and saying like, I was the policy uh, coordinator for the organization. I was in the legislature at like standing outside of a committee meeting where they were voting on my bill when I got the call about my brother. And I just, I left, I had to go. And we had a partner who's working on it with us. And so she just took it over, but he, Kent said, you know, just go, whatever you have to do, just go. And I just left for two weeks and, you know, was with my family, totally checked out from work. And um, I had never had a, a boss who, was supportive in that way of me before. And really, I mean, I'd never had that experience before either, obviously. Um, But it showed me what it looked like to support someone through a moment of shock and grief and to support them in a way where they were more committed to the organization on the back end of that experience, you know? And so I just always remembered it when I was working with him of how he had been so generous. Didn't care like if work fell down or if I couldn't get like certain deliverables completed on the timeline. Really transformed the way that I worked with other people too, you know, just from my own personal experience with that. And so now I'm in a leadership role at the hub now and I took over from Kent and I really try to carry that forward. And so the way that I think about it is like as a leader, supporting people as whole people and recognizing that life isn't always predictable. And there are times when people will have to step back and you shouldn't give up on them or be critical of them. But if you support them through that, they will step forward and often like step deeper into the work because they've received that support. And then the other thing is that 
it was just so generous. And it really made me think deeply about how generosity matters and how you have to practice that, you know, and you really have to train yourself to kind of shut down the voice in your head that says, yes, but I need this. And now I have to do this work because you can't do it or whatever the critical voice might be. Say, no, I'm going to be more generous right now than maybe you even expect me to be because that benefits you, but it also benefits me in the long run because it builds our trust and it it makes us stronger as a whole. Tell the listener a little bit more about the hub in case they haven't heard um, what the organization does. And then also, I'd love to hear some of your big priorities that you're working on as a leader right now. The hub is a, a statewide nonprofit that works in community development, mostly with small communities. So what we mean when we say community development is really building strong towns that are grown in the vision that the local communities have for them, right? And so the way that our work looks, it looks like lots of different things in different places because it's really led by the community members. And not every community wants the exact same things, right? So that we're automatically, it can't be a standardized type thing. There are some core values that we have that guide our work, you know, so we really prioritize um, supporting small local businesses and Main Street redevelopment. And um, we do provide some guidance and expertise to communities to help them think about ways that they can grow their economy and grow their communities in a way to build stronger towns and to draw in more diversified industries. We aren't experts in bringing in like major industries or like big box stores or something like that. We're really kind of like small town development, but the work starts and ends with leadership, you know? And so the, way that we work in the communities that we work with is with local leaders in those communities. And we're really intentional about making sure that they understand that leadership looks like lots of different things for different people in different places. And so we always want to work with the official leaders, like the elected leaders and the people that traditionally have taken on taken on a leadership role in the community, whether that's elected or volunteer. But we're always trying to find new people, too, and to help people that haven't necessarily seen themselves as leaders before find their passion and grow their leadership. So we do that through coaching work with individual communities, and we work with like 15 to 20 communities a year across the state. And um, that's really kind of in-depth, intensive, on-the-ground work with them. Our coaches are expected to be out of their offices and on the road and in the communities meeting in person with those community leaders they work with on a regular basis. And their goal is to really help them guide ideas towards implementation and real projects. The other big piece of the work that the hub does is like systematic work. So we really see that there is an opportunity to grow all of our work together when organizations are working in partnership together, are aligning their work and are thinking about what are the hurdles that all communities are facing that we can work on together that we can make more movement on rather than doing it on a case-by-case basis. And so 
the first way that I got engaged in working with you, Brandon, was through our abandoned and dilapidated property work. And so long, long time ago, we built this coalition that was really looking at policy change around dilapidated properties. That was because that was an issue that every single community that we worked in, and I would say every community in the whole state faces, and that there are solutions that can be created at a statewide level to build new tools and help communities address it that can move them faster than um, just the kind of community by community or property by property work. It was a great issue too, because it was a not only a bipartisan, it's like a nonpartisan issue, but it was a big issue. I feel like sometimes when groups try and get a nonpartisan issue, it's like small ball, you know, it's like, let's have a flower garden and no one's against that. But this is like a really big pressing issue for communities that there are lots of good ideas from lots of different perspectives. Yeah, it's been a a through line of the hub's work, that abandoned and dilapidated property work. And it's where some of our most exciting and innovative partnerships have come from. It's where like some of the most unexpected um, new relationships have emerged from. It just will surprise you who really cares about this. People care about buildings. They have a real direct connection to buildings and to the ideas that they have for how to redevelop the buildings in their communities. And it is shockingly complicated to do that. (laughs) So you know it better than any of us do. You know, it's just so difficult. And, um, And especially as volunteer community teams, when they would take on these projects, it was far beyond a volunteer's ability to manage a building redevelopment project, a multi-story building redevelopment project, you know, so being able to connect them with groups like Coalfield that are doing that work and really taking on those challenges has been, been really critical. And I think that that we do work in lots of different areas. And like I said, the work of the hub starts and ends with leadership development. Part of the work that I am most energized about right now is the rural development work. And I think part of what interests me about it is that there is this coalition of really high performing organizations around the state that are committed to working on this. They we've uh, we're working in increasing alignment in the work together. And it's been very interesting because it has felt to me at least fairly non-competitive in the work, really groups understanding being excited and supportive of each other's roles, but also recognizing that there are gaps that need to be worked through in the state. Um, So that's been, you know, from a sort of programmatic perspective, some of the most interesting work to me um, over the last year. And I think some of the place, it's a place where I feel like we, are on the verge of building the processes to transform a lot of places. A lot of that opportunity, I think, for moving into a like large-scale transformational position is dependent on the people that are at the table, you know, and the relationships that the organizations have with each other. So that's uh, continuing to kind of build those relationships and support each other you know, I mean, like support you and support the leaders at the other organizations that are working in rural downtown redevelopment. 
to me, it feels just as important because our success is connected to each other. To your point on competition, that like th- this is just a key moment in Appalachian history and we've got to get this right. And, and we really need to all be on the same team, right? Like the competition is poverty. <laughs> the competition is disinvestment. The competition is unfair systems. Two nonprofits trying to make things better are not competitors, right? But that's easier said than done. It is daunting, the challenges that are facing our state and our region. And it's daunting the potential that we have to miss the moment, you know, and the opportunity. Um, It does feel right now like we're in a moment where failing to act and failing to work together can mean that we miss an opportunity to make some big difference. Um, and I don't know if every moment feels like that. It feels, it feels particular to this. It feels like high stakes, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It's scary. It's exciting. Um, but it's also daunting. We need more people doing this work. We really do. I see through the hubs work, all kinds of people that are really passionate about community development. Many of them don't know what that term community development, they're passionate about their towns. They're passionate about the people in their towns or the young people in their towns or in the state. But it's really that passion, you know, that's the crux of it all. Right now, it feels like we have an amazing group of leaders that are working together. And I think that you we can show some real transformation that's happened in communities around the state. But it's only sort of scraping the surface. There's a lot more that we could do. But we need to like quintuple the number of people that are working you know, so finding the resources to grow the field is always a challenge. And one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet is, you know, West Virginia is, it is resource rich and funding poor, I would say, you know, and so when you compare us to other places, we're really scraping together um, our work with a few key funding partners, but not nearly as many as other states have. And so um, that's one of the, just the key challenges. And one of my hopes for this moment is that we can get our federal partners to understand, you know, that we have the capacity to do a lot of work in the state. Um, And if we had the investment to match that capacity, we could make some transformational change. They have to show up with that investment, though. And that's what is really needed in this moment. But also that the solutions don't have to be invented in in D.C. The solutions are here on the ground in the communities, in the hills and hollers, and just need invested in. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think is really interesting, and I always have difficulty really making this clear to people who aren't here in West Virginia is that there's just a real kind of schism between the national narrative about what's happening in West Virginia and what people want and what people need and what's happening on the ground and what people care about and what they're working on and what they need. And so things are much more hopeful and there's a lot more movement happening in communities in West Virginia than gets acknowledged. Um, And part of what we're fighting against is 
a multi-generational narrative about our state. We're digging below what color our state is on a map on election night. Yeah, people are more than how they vote one day. It sometimes feels like two totally separate conversations are happening. And the kind of larger scale conversation about West Virginia, it just often feels completely disconnected from what's happening day to day here and the reality of of what we're working on and, and the challenges we're facing and the things that are opportunities. But I think generally, I feel really lucky to be from West Virginia, completely blessed to get to do this type of work. I mean, what how lucky um, to get to work on the ground with communities and yeah, keep telling ourselves that on the hard days, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we're actually we're the lucky ones, you know, yeah, to get to be have a seat at the table and be a part of this critical moment in, in Appalachian history and to live in such a beautiful place that has such an important role in this country. Of course, there are all kinds of challenges and all kinds of things that we need to improve. Yeah, I think, like you said, we have everything here that we need. We have the solutions here that we need and the people to do the the things that we want to do to improve our state. It's really about just putting the pieces together and removing the hurdles. Stephanie, you you I mean you say it's all about leadership and just genuinely from from my heart, you are a an amazing leader in our state and for our region. And I really enjoy working with you and I've really, really enjoyed our conversation today. And I hope we can have more because it went by quick. My first time being on a podcast. So thank you for having me. (laughs) And um, yeah, I always love talking about this stuff. And we are lucky to, to do this. And I feel lucky to be in the work with you, Brandon. So thanks for what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining. And uh, the work goes on. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development at the West Edge Factory in Huntington, West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for up-to-date information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.